I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Did You Read? with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read? The Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages. This week, I'm joined by Rachel Sylvester, Daniel Finkelstein and Matthew Paris. The election campaign has already started with populist policies from Ed Miliband and disagreements between Nick Clegg and David Cameron. Now the Conservatives plan to divide the voters into eight groups based on personality type, not ideology. But will it work? I've been reflecting on Ed Miliband's proposals to boost the wages of the low paid. It's not a particularly bad idea to nudge companies to pay what they can. But ultimately, people's pay is anchored to the value they can add to the economy. We have to boost that. We can't just write ourselves a cheque. I'm still reeling over Keir Starmer's bonkers suggestion that people be criminally liable to report suspicions over child abuse. I don't even think we're under a criminal responsibility to report suspicions over child murder. I'm wondering whether to return to the fray and write about it for Saturday. So those are our topics for today. And we're going to begin, Rachel, with uh, your column in Tuesday's newspaper. And you've got hold of a whole way that Linton Crosby, now hired by the Conservatives that on a £500,000 deal, is going to try and help the Conservatives reach the electorate. And you must explain to us all these terms that they're using. Apparently, we're all either... Anxious, aspirational, steady conservatives, young urbanites, urban strugglers. It sounds a very unusual way of trying to connect to voters. Do you? Well, I thought it was fascinating. The Tories have decided to divide the British electorate into eight tribes, some of which you've mentioned. Mm. And they're based not on sort of ideology or policy support, but they're on attitude to life. So it's whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, whether you think your children will have a better future than you, whether you're comfortable about, um, you know, Britain's place in the world. It's much more about sort of attitude and emotion than ideology. Um, and the idea is to sort of segment, it's the segmentation strategy is how they describe it. And you segment the electorate into these different types of groupings. And then you can target the groupings with specific policies. So your aspirational, anxious voters might get leaflets about the help to buy scheme that the Tories have launched. Um, your urban strugglers might get details of the rise in personal tax allowances. And it's, it, it's, it, the aim is to make a much more sort of personalised and targeted 
election campaign where it's individual to each voter. The danger, of course, is that you end up with kind of mixed messages and a sort of lack of an overall moral vision mm. from the top. Matthew Paris. This is a very good way of getting readers. I, I can see that as a columnist because everyone's going to read it to try to work out which group they're in. <laughs> And, and, of course, you do read it and you discover that you're not really in any group. You're in lots of them. And it's all absolute tosh. I, I, I don't mean that this is not what the party is planning to do. Rachel reports that quite correctly. But in the end, there is one government, one prime minister, one leader of the opposition and, and one British people. And there's a clear message and it's got to go to everybody or to most people or the, the, the party falls. And we always do this before elections. We... we tell each other how cleverly we're, we're segmenting and targeting. And there was something called Mosaic about five or six years ago after the election. I think that still exists. Does it indeed? Yes. Well, it's, <laughs> Refer it's to by by. <laughs> after, uh, The election over, you generally feel that the country <clears throat> voted because the country felt something about a government, a message and a prime minister, not because of segmentation. D Daniel Finkelstein, do you agree with that? Because one of the things that Rachel mentions in her piece is it's not just Linton Crosby, the Wizard of Odd, that David Cameron's recruited, but also Jim Messina, an advisor to Barack Obama. And actually one thing that has been very characteristic of American politics for a long time is actually profiling of the electorate and then targeting of them. Ma Matthew may not like it. I think I share his his view in some ways of not liking it. But it does seem to work, doesn't it? Well, of course. Uh, and we're going to have more of it uh, because people are going to be able much more accurately to find out what people think by, for example, looking at what products they buy. Essentially, data uh, manipulation allows you to relate, I don't know, uh, your purchases of not just a newspaper where your opinion might uh, be um, clear from the papers that you buy, but say your breakfast cereal and your politics and your income. Mm. Uh, and Lots of organizations are doing this, and we're going to see more of it. Focus groups was just the beginning of it, and a party that doesn't do it professionally will just simply lose. Um, now, I, don't, I do agree with Matthew at this point. I think that you have to have a strong overall basic argument. Uh, but the Labour Party was very effective at the last election in targeting a campaign about old age pensioners' um, heating allowances on northwest old age pensioners who were particularly concerned about that, forcing David Cameron into the promise he then made. So it did change the dynamics of the election campaign. You, this is the future of all sorts of things, not just politics. Rachel Sylvester. I, I think it's also there's going to be a sort of mismatch between the very macro election and a very micro election. So there are going to be sort of big themes of the economy, living standards are the main ones that are going to dominate and decide who wins. But underneath that, it's going to be an incredibly localised and detailed campaign. And the closer it is, which it looks like it's going to be, the more kind of nudging couple of percent here or there in the margins could make the difference between being in number 10 or not. So the parties have got to sort of juggle this, this sort of dual thing of a very big and very small um, election campaign. And one of the words that you use in your column, Rachel, is bombarded. And how much stuff do you think we're going to get through the letterboxes and on via email and on the phone. It's, I think it depends who you are. It yeah. depends where you live, whether you're in one of the key marginal seats and also whether you're one of these key target groups. So if the parties, either party, think you're, you're, you're a kind of swing voter who might be persuadable, I think you're going to be totally bombarded. But if you're somebody who's not, not particularly going to move either way or isn't going to affect the result, you'd probably be left well alone. You'd be ignored. 
<laughs> um, Jeremy Paxman has given an interview, um, I think, with Radio Times uh, this week, and he talks about the fact that he thinks people are going to be more turned off politics at the next election than for a very long time. He thinks that's partly a reflection of what he's very frankly talked about, the quality of the politicians we have at the moment. But Matthew Paris, this is not going to help, is it, this uh, targeting this strategy? This is one of the things that does turn people off politics. I think it was Churchill who said that the British people find it hard to look up to a leader who is keeping his ear to the ground. (laughs) If you see your politicians intensely studying um, categories and and advertising executives uh, profiles of particular groupings and wondering what people want to hear, if the public see their politicians doing that, they lose confidence in the politicians. I should have confidence in a politician who didn't know what these eight categories was, but knew what he or she believed. But isn't the trick that Tony Blair pulled off, Matthew, that he actually looked like a politician of great conviction, but actually he was listening intently to every focus group and opinion poll that he could possibly do with Philip Gould advising him? I rumbled him from the start. (laughs) You did. Uh, Daniel Finkelstein. It's what people say they want, a politician who just says what they uh, think, as long as what that politician thinks is what they already (laughs) agree with. Um, People, Of course people want targeted things for themselves Um, every single uh, sales of anything works exactly that way and uh, politics is no different from that you you have I agree that it has certain problems, which is that people always want to write themselves uh, a check, um, as we may discuss later. But uh, the, the um, and so therefore, this segmentation does produce a problem of, of sacrificing the overall good for sectional interests. I think that is a problem. But the reason it does that is because that is actually effective politically, and you will see more of it. People will be. Uh, People, of course, people say they want politicians just um, not to pay any heed to anybody else's opinion except for their own. But they don't actually really want that. Um, Rachel, final word to you on this uh, segment before we move on. Do you have a sense of which of the political parties is better at this? Which has the better machine? You refer in your article to a slightly different kind of Labour approach to the idea of building community relations. Well, Labour has brought in another former advisor to uh, Barack Obama called Ernie Graff who's he's a community organiser and their version of this is to go into constituencies where they're trying to win support and actually do stuff so it may whether it's cleaning up a park you know running a soup kitchen Stella Creasy has been fascinating about this we interviewed her a couple of weeks ago the MP for Walthamstow and there she when the riots happened she organised fish and chips for the policemen using Twitter to get vinegar delivered she organises soup kitchens food banks um, big campaign against payday lending. So it's sort of de- their, their phrase is delivering change on the ground. So you don't have to wait to win an election to actually mm. do stuff. So and that's candidates their, becoming community workers. Well, it is, and they and they're trying to. They've got community organisers hired in lots of the constituencies. They're transferring resources from direct mail and leaflets to these kind of campaigners who are then going to try and get volunteers and it's another version of a sort of localized individualized campaigning Mm. and I think in this when sort of less tribal less kind of party loyalty more individualistic voters all the parties are having to work out a different way of doing politics. Okay well thanks Rachel let's move on to our second topic after looking um, at, at the targeted message, the macro message, Daniel Finkelstein, that Ed Miliband is focusing on. He seems to be going back to that first big theme of his leadership, the squeezed middle. And he's focusing on the fact that 
our cost of living or the average cost of living year after year now for a number of years has been declining. You think he's on to something, but probably doesn't have a solution to the to the real underlying problem. It's, it's, he's undoubtedly onto something in this sense uh, that capitalism over a long period of time uh, now, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 years, has been quite successful at delivering uh, resources to the very well off and at creating a do, a economic growth that doesn't actually grow the income of a lot of the mainstream working people. Mm. Um, and he realizes this is a problem. Correct. Uh, he has some policies which I think do constitute, you know, a response. For example, trying to nudge companies to pay the living wage rather than the minimum wage. And because I believe that people's wage setting is often set by social norms rather than absolutely by the market, he may succeed a little bit. So you, you uh, actually support his idea of giving well, a tax incentive to I'm cut firms by that it. do it. I, I think it'll make a marginal difference. I noted that he says that most of it will be paid by benefits uh, that the state won't have to pay out. What, what that really means is that he's moving the tax from being paid by the taxpayer to being paid by businesses mm-hmm. and therefore ultimately by consumers. He's not actually improving people's income because he's cancelling their benefits in order to give them uh, greater <laughs> income. So it doesn't actually um, – it doesn't actually. what I really think is it's a, it's a policy that's quite interesting but very limited. And unfortunately, all policies are limited when all they constitute is writing ourselves checks by borrowing or by giving us uh, tax cuts that we can't afford or bumping up the living so wage. What, so the what, only way that, that you can do anything about about it is a long-term campaign policy to make people uh, of more value to the economy, which means better scientific and computer education. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, the ability to essentially aid um, computers in their task, really. In other words, to to sort of man the unmanned machines. Matthew Paris, you've been very sceptical about this whole cost of living debate. You wrote an article for The Times a few Saturdays ago in which you said it's all really about the economic growth and Tories should not be trying to beat Labour at their own game, which is defining it by the cost of living. But one of the phrases that Ed Miliband used in his party conference speech was that a rising tide does not lift all boats, it only lifts yachts. And 
Don't you think there is something about the connection between economic growth and everyone benefiting? That connection has broken in some way. Well, it may, of course, be that um, by limiting the extent to which people benefit from economic growth, you help boost growth because you make our exports and our industries more competitive because they're not paying such high wages. <laughs> I, I don't know. But I there have, are losers from that, though, yeah, that you may be right. Losers, yes. I have, um, I have an instinctive Tory reaction against uh, all this kind of interference and what, what some people call a tax rebate is actually just a kind of subsidy because the state is foregoing revenue it would otherwise have got. But I have to keep reminding myself that I was against the minimum wage too. I, I had all kinds of, I think, very compelling economic arguments why the state shouldn't lay down a minimum wage. The minimum wage came in and I wouldn't change it now. So I was wrong about that and I might be wrong about this. Well, for those of uh, our listeners who subscribe to The Times, one thing that I will do on the uh, Comment Central blog, which uh, accompanies this uh, podcast, is I'll post an article by John McTernan, who was an advisor to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He does actually say the reason why the minimum wage didn't cause unemployment was Labour very carefully set it at a very judicious level. Mm -hmm. And he actually does oppose the living wage, although he supported the minimum wage. So that might be something for Times subscribers to follow on. Um, Rachel, though, the politics of this, though, for Ed Miliband does seem compelling. He is, seems to be on an issue where he is resonating for with the public, perhaps for the first time in his leadership. What's fascinating is that since that um, conference speech that Ed Miliband made, where he proposed the price fee, freeze on energy bills, it, um, it, it, the Tories seem really on the back foot. It, it somehow shifted the debate from the economic growth and the bigger economic economic arguments to this living standards debate on which Labour is far more comfortable. And you can argue about whether that's right or wrong, but I think it has shifted the debate. And even on this living wage issue, that you know, you, you talk to people in Number 10 and they've been looking at this and looking at an increase in the minimum wage or trying to introduce some kind of living wage. Boris Johnson has backed a living wage in London, mm. but they haven't yet got around to any proposals. So yet again, it looks like the... Tories are on the back foot, Labour's on the front foot. And, you know, I'm sceptical about the energy freeze, for example, but but whether or not the policy is actually right, it is breaking through and it's making people feel as if Ed Miliband's got some ideas that might help them. And the problem for David Cameron and George Osborne is that they look like they don't know what ordinary people are going through. You know, mm. they're whatever it was. A the constant Dean problem Soros, that they know have the faced. cost of yeah. a price of milk. The, the, um, Daniel Finkelstein, um, Rachel says that this seems to be something that's broken through. In a, in a column you wrote two or three weeks ago, you seem to argue that the Ed Miliband's energy freeze hadn't really moved political opinion. Are you, are you, are you revisiting that? Or? No, it's not the energy freeze that I think is... Uh, I mean, I think the energy freeze is emblematic of the fact that people feel their own income squeezed and the fact that the debate has moved on where people think there's, an, there's economic growth and they're beginning to wonder where their bit of it is and that is going to help Labour. Um, and uh, I, I personally think they'll be very dubious about politicians promising, to the extent that they're aware of it at all, uh, be very dubious about politicians promising them specific uh, ways out of it. And I think they're also right to be dubious about it. One of, I think fundamentally uh, politicians cannot alter uh, how much people are worth. They have to alter that themselves and that means that politicians have got to, to have got a job of trying to set the structure of the economy and trying to make sure the education and infrastructure system works to do that but but you can't 
simply rise, raise people's living standards by announcing that living standards are going to be raised. And the reason why there's a political issue about living standards is people's living standards aren't rising. And the reason they're not rising is fundamental problems, not to do with the government, but to do with the fact that we're not as a country as rich as we thought we were. Matthew Paris, what, what should the Tory response be then to this? Is it as sort of... Uh, Danny's just hinted, just tell the country the truth about yes. the state. and or, or do they need to do something on tax or some other cost of living issue? They, they, they may do things, but what they say should be that money doesn't grow on trees. We can't get richer by writing each other checks, that the whole economy has to grow before the benefits can really flow through properly to large numbers of people and that all the rest is political hogwash. Well, that seems a good way to end that section and move on to the topic you've chosen for us this week, uh, Matthew. You wrote a very powerful column on Saturday about the murder of an innocent man who was suspected by local people of being a paedophile. And the topic, though, you've, uh, I think, want us to specifically think about this time is the former director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, has said that those who do not report their suspicions of um, child abuse and are in a position of authority where um, they have a public responsibility might actually be prosecuted if they fail to pass on those suspicions. Now, this seems to be exactly the kind of public hysteria that worries you. Yes, the the burden of the column I wrote on Saturday was that we're all going slightly crazy about paedophilia. It was not that paedophilia doesn't exist. It was not that paedophilia is not, cannot be a terrible thing, but that we are all getting it out of proportion. And the the one thing I omitted from that Saturday column was that the fact that he was innocent uh, isn't isn't the the only dismaying thing about it. It would still have been wrong to have lynched him, even if he had been a paedophile. Now, I am genuinely puzzled. Columnists often say they're puzzled when they aren't really, but I'm genuinely puzzled that Keir Starmer, who was director of public prosecutions, that that he could imagine that it would work to make it a criminal offence for people, perhaps people working with children, not to report suspicions of paedophilia. As far as I know, it's not a criminal offence not to report suspicions of murder. Uh, The baby P, awful baby P case, didn't involve a a criminal failure to report suspicions on the part of social workers, there would be two consequences of this if were such a law brought in. And I can't see how he thinks it could work. Firstly, we will then begin to look at other crimes and ask whether not reporting them ought to be a criminal offence as mm-hmm. well. I'm doing a bit of research at the moment to find out whether there are any. There must be a few. And secondly, anybody in the workplace, you know, be it the social welfare department of a local authority or teachers in school, will immediately draw the conclusion that if they have any suspicions about a child, they better not discuss them with anybody because the moment they have discussed their suspicions, people know they have suspicions and they may, might then be under a criminal sanction for not reporting them to the police. Well, before I bring in uh, uh, Danny and Rachel, let me read a piece that Ross Clark wrote um, in Tuesday's time, just a little section of it. A functioning child protection system, he wrote, relies on people in a position to report abuse being able to use their judgment. 
Start rattling the jail keys, however, and they will be terrified into reporting everything. Every child who comes to school crying, every mark on a child's skin, unexpectedly poor performance in academic work, all things that could possibly indicate abuse, but that are almost all cases benign. And then his key argument here, child protection departments will end up with a mountain of data, but even less chance that the important pieces of information will be put together. If we have... Rachel Danny, this climate of fear, in the end, won't it be the vulnerable children who will suffer most? Rachel Sylvester. Well, also, I, the other thing is I think there are sort of wider social dangers. So you, one of the things that I think is important is that you have people who do, there is a sort of trust and that people can help each other and talk to each other without it being all about the law or, you know, you might have some criminal sanction. So a couple of years ago, I was trying to read in my son's class and I was told I had to have a criminal records bureau check and that it would mm. take months and months to be able to get... I did get the criminal records check and I went in and I read, you know, Janet and John with the children. <laughs> but, it, you know, if you want to go on a school trip with your children, you have to have a criminal records check. And the assumption is that parents in the children's school are somehow going to be paedophiles and risk to the other children or their own children. You, you're recommending it, some sort of exception for parents from these checks then? Because well, I, do, the, I just think that you should, there, there should there, there's got to be some kind of social capital. If, you know, David Cameron wants the big society, Ed Miliband wants one nation. You're never going to get that unless people can have a degree of trust and you can help other people without sudden, somehow having to go through a criminal records check. Can you, Danny? Because the trouble is, though, if a paedophile does end up in the classroom because um, these criminal checks aren't in place, the first thing that tabloids and others will call out for is for these checks to be put back in place. Look, the, the, the problem with suspicions is that sometimes they're correct and sometimes they aren't. Uh, and any any medical test that you that you do for a, a disease uh, will turn up some false positives and some false negatives. And it's simply a question of which one you want to live with the most. Um, if, if we veer towards a system, for example, where we take away from the parents any child we suspect is being abused, um, we will end up with a system whereby we're taking away from parents completely unjustifiably a lot of of children, uh, we cancel that system and move back towards the other way, and we get lots of baby peas. Um, you, there is, you obviously aim for a middle between the two, but uh, you don't want to veer uh, into sort of uh, into sort of emergencies. And I agree with Matthew. I think um, Keir Starmer. I, is someone I simultaneously have. I mean, actually, he's quite a good illustration of this. On the one hand, by Keir Starmer having being more better attuned to public opinion on prosecutions, he was a very good um, d- director of public prosecutions. He had a very precise mind. On the other hand, sometimes I felt that as a result of this being attuned to public opinion, he was often too populist. As this ex- uh, this is an example. This is the example of exactly what I mean. You you can't have Keir Starmer without some of without a few bonkers ideas from Keir Starmer when he gets it slightly wrong. That was when that's you know the alternative is he doesn't listen to public opinion at all and never and gets it wrong in a different way. People get things wrong. We have to live with that. Okay. Well, I'm afraid we have run out of time for this week's podcast. I want to thank uh, my uh, three guests: Matthew Paris, Daniel Finkelstein, and Rachel Sylvester, and also my producer David Maguire. Some of the pieces that we've been discussing um, on today's podcast you can read um, if you are a Times subscriber at thetimes.co.uk/commentcentral. That's where you can subscribe also to this podcast via iTunes. But most of all, thank you for listening and hope you'll tune in again next week. Goodbye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.